Sean O'Reather was born on the 1st of August in Cork, 1931. He grew up where traditional music was the living music of the people. His father from Clare was an enthusiastic traditional fiddle player and his great-grandfather was a farmer, poet and sculptor and had translated the Odyssey into Irish, which was never published, however. His mother's family came from County Cork and claimed descent from the Macridons, whose names are on the Dalway Harp of 1621. Sean O'Reather was educated at the Christian Brothers in Adair, County Limerick, and subsequently read classics in University College Cork, and studied piano under Alice Fleischmann Sr., in whose memory the beautiful Holderan songs were written. After graduation in 1952, he became assistant director of music at Radio Aaron, leaving there after only 18 months in order to study in Italy and Paris. Some of his own piano compositions were broadcast from Paris Radio in 1954. After returning to Ireland, he became director of music at the Abbey Theatre. O'Reilly's most significant work was composed, or at least had its origins, in the period around 1956-57. In 58, he gave a series of 14 lectures on RTE entitled A Musical Heritage. In 1960, he was commissioned by Galen to write the music for the film Misha Eire. The Song of the Anvil, a play by Brian McMahon produced at the Abbey Theatre in 1961, was the occasion that brought Sean O'Rear the first into contact with some of the musicians who formed Kjolthori Kulen. Lovers of traditional music gathered in his house in Dublin's Galloping Green each week to play and dance on the wooden floor, which he had specially strengthened from below for that purpose. From these sessions came Kjolthori Kulen, with whom he claimed he changed the sound of traditional instrumental music. At the same time, O'Rear changed his own life too, relearning Irish with awesome thoroughness and soaking up the old traditions, a process which was to see him loading up his family one day and driving to Dunqueen in the Kerry Gaeltacht. In 1964, he was appointed Cork Corporation Lecturer in Irish Music in University College Cork. And in order to identify himself more closely with the living language and the people, he took a house in Coulet, west of Macroom, and from there travelled to Cork each day for lectures, to Dublin for his many broadcasts, TV appearances, recording sessions and concert work. In this programme we examine O'Reilly's family life in Coulet and his relationship with the local community. In another programme we will deal with his music during those years. Sean the Hora, singer and raconteur, was a close friend of O'Reilly. Here he talks to producer Pat Feely about the purchase of the house in Coulet. Gulé. <laughs> I'm listening to In fact, I can remember well 
I was there the day that he got word that he had got the job in UCC and uh, I met him that evening and he told me that he had got a job in UCC and he said I don't know what I'll do now because I'd love to stay here in Ballyferrother and travel to Cork every day but that's impossible he said and then sure if I get a house and stay in Cork and stay, and stay there to just Dublin all over again it is the same thing and he asked me tell me is there any house in Coolay it is near enough to Cork and I told him actually that there was that Donald Kilcan's house had been for sale for a few years and uh, that I'm sure it would be easy to bite and actually the following day himself and Sean the Horror and Sean Kivan in Ballyferrother are in Grigg they went to Marnie Kilcan lived in Bellingcolleg at the time they went to Coolay and looked at the house and went from that to Bellingcolleg and he bought the house from her that night O'Reather was a national figure when he came to Coolay he and his group Kjolthari Kulin had swept the country with their new sound. He was appearing regularly on television and broadcasting frequently on the radio. His arrival created a stir. Early on, he became involved not only in the cultural life, but also in the economic life of the community. Mihola Lenard is a local teacher. Margine, agus mar korsa, agus mar, um, er, uh, er ev, um Lasse Fobel, Gumur, Ige, the Vakshadakare Haru, Vishagoni, a queen of her flanner, con an article of rag, near a Torrelish and Mitch Gamena, a V in a Kaunigan, the Kurche, Kudiko, con Krihe, near Varshe, con Bader Nikin, Bovo, a Kurkun Krihe, no few while in snow. Actually, inside the Navy on the Vrasha, Gorbeginda, a Vedian of Namasa, a Goni, Nihandahin, Ach, Dahorsin, Agus, Dundawig, Harter, Kuli, Balavoda, Agus, Art, and Archin. Can sort the Arca a Vieg Mint in the hot air, nor Hanshego do not and care do it? Um, Nihin the machine is Akas Farakuig, er land in Jan Hapig maar wie een commissie ig eh wie schabel dialogue in der mifen eh sit liger Agus Marshin, the inner Talaf Kamontalish Golua. Cadina Rodi a Rinishansha happened to Finn. Um, Rodi is more in Shanshan vision. Coninja. I think the Kohikshe, the Kohikshe Finn Vas in Snadini, Marguini Gelta, we say Follows Taga, Sanite, Nurahanishe, we rent Dini. Won't come in tonight, let Hammer Moore and also I'm sure on Doctor Olinchig at Sachnisha. In Yishin, Hanig Donald Yoghain, Fair Vigo Fan Conrugus Fan Kostadakish, Mount Algeria, the Matchish in Robert Shore Hawkshire, the Nigan Rahrakti, Agus, 
Well, I think this is generally known. Uh, it seems that probably because people didn't understand uh, about him or were misinformed about his ability or some such thing, um, he would seem to be a threat to certain people uh, that he would uh, oust them, uh, we'll say, from their position uh, or the limelight in which they uh, had up to then enjoyed. And I think um, it was only after he died, really, that some of them came to understand what it was all about. Was it the question of a big fish from from the outside world coming into the small pool of Coulet? Yes, possibly that. Uh, I think this is a thing that happens in small communities. Uh, like, uh, they don't like people coming in to upset the apple cart, and they think that... Uh, you know, people have uh, some different motives to what they have, and I think in this way that uh, um, it was completely unjustified as far as I'm concerned. I, I regret that this um, this was the way when he came here first.
The Oriades were in Kule about six months when Morani Hulwan, a local girl, came to work for the family. Except for some temporary periods of disagreement, she was with them for the rest of Oriades' life, and as she lived in, she had a good inside view of life in the house. Oh, he was in Kule some six months, I'd say, when I first started working for Sean That was directly after I leaving school. And he needed a maid, so I was taken on. Without any interviews, just as I was. Do the housework, that's all he wanted. And if I was happy, he was happy. So we had no problems in the line of who who do this or who do that. I had responsibility of the house. And he managed the rest himself. And what did you do? Oh, I done all the ordinary housework and see to his family, see to the meals and um, keep the place tidy, as tidy as you could with seven kids. It wasn't very easy, but he wasn't very particular once you just got over and done with it. And he didn't really mind, not anything in particular. He'd never ask you anything in particular. Only on occasions he would decide that he should rise out and do little skewed around the house. And that was just to make contact with everything he had, he owned. And if anything was missing, well, I was the one to blame or I had him mislaid him. So I'd go on, he'd return again and be taken back again after a small short length of time. But he would never apologise or say he was wrong. I was to come back when he would ask me and that was it. But this happened fairly often. You often left and oh, I gave up the job and... Very often, more times than I can remember. But uh, he would come back again, like if anyone did call or he was needed. And to the many you would get, like to be put up with the cabal that was there a lot of times. They had lots of parties and um, different things that would need settling out for. But he would come back just the same as I'd go back to him. There was one story about the, the Kenwood chef. Could you tell us that story? Oh, that I'll tell you. Uh, they did get a new Kenwood chef, the latest model, and uh, it was my business to wash it and to put it away. And on one occasion, a little rubber that was fitting in underneath it, I placed it on one end, and the following time that I used it, the rubber was missing. And... Uh, I was the one that had mislaid it. I hadn't the courage to tell him. Maybe I put it on the other inch on. Or if we try the rubber this way, it might work. So the rubber did go missing and the machine wouldn't work. He wouldn't even put it going for herself to give me the benefit of the doubt. And um, I got my week's notice and I quit there and then. I'd never work out the week. I should go there and then, like, I wouldn't give him the satisfaction. And uh, after a length of time, he'd return again. And the Kinwood chef had been working, but he wouldn't give in that the rubber was should be turned around. We'd never mentioned the problem or speak with again to be all over and forgotten until he'd decided again to raise another cabal about something. And um, you'd get on fine with him, provided you knew his ups and downs. And don't threaten him when he wasn't feeling himself. That was mostly in foggy weather. He didn't like foggy weather. Why did he put up the red light? Uh, 
the red light was put up to keep us quiet when he was composing music. He had his own study built after the house, uh, an entrance from the kitchen, and when he'd go down, we more than likely never thought Sean was doing anything in particular, or that he'd need any peace and quiet, so he decided to put up a red bulb over the door of his study. And that bulb would be lighting if we made a tickle, including herself, God rest her soul, the two of us would be a run out of the house until he'd be finished his day's work. Then we could talk on again. But if we did speak while it was on, he'd come up and let you know you did speak. Would he and actually put you outside the door? Or he'd just come up and tell you, like, could you get any better time to decide to talk or to raise a cabal about anything, including his family? It is then things had got to the devil altogether, no one would want him quietness like you would really and truly forget there was such a thing as quietness. And um, when he'd switch off the bulb, we could be back again to ourselves. And that was a lot of noise and a lot of cabal around the place all the time. But they were very happy and they had a big family and he was head of the household. And it was until the day he did die. And uh, you, there was an incident in the house while you were there involving an oak stool... There was, he had an oak stool inside the table, a long table to seat all nine of them down together, or ten of us, and uh, four of them, the four youngest, or the five youngest were inside the table having dinner. He was on the outside with Ruth, where he usually sat, and uh, they decided they'd have some battle of something or another, and the stool fell down, and it fell on his toe where he had to have his toe lanced some time after, it got very sore. And um, he just asked him, see, Nation, and uh, they all just answered me, Michigan, and uh, he'd never ask any more, just look for the timber spoon and lined up the four or five of them that were inside the table along by the banister of the stairs and took them in one by one as their ages came along and gave him doing over inside in the sitting room with the timber spoon and left him off and then he could tell him that you figure out between you who did knock this stool and that was it then they were they were really afraid of him and it was a great way for him to have his family they honoured and respected him and that is what did make him a happy family he was boss and if they'd done anything out of the way it was his authority to give him the timber spoon Rachel, Oriada's daughter, was 15 when her father died. She remembers him in a different way. Like I can remember um, the two of us were, were always kind of competing. We'd have a little game whereby um, he'd stick out his hand, you know, his knuckles like that, and I'd, I'd hit his knuckles back, you see, and we'd be at that for hours, you know, and of course he'd hurt me, but I wouldn't give in. I'd, we used to um, have races out. You know, running up and down the road as well, and if I if I ever beat him, I was um, allowed a half a crown, but I never did, and I'd keep on um, challenging him to a race up and down the road. You see, but um, I never won. I always thought the day would come when I did, but it never came. And lots of little stories like that. They're, they're, they're the things that stand out in my mind really about he, him. He had an adventurous streak and a. Maybe uh, even a childish streak that would uh, probably appeal to children. I mean, the fact that he would get involved in races with uh, and that sort of thing is an indication. He had, yeah, that, w- that was kind of a... We, we, when we were sitting around the table and drinking tea and so on, he he used to play lots of little games with us, like um, 
so we'd all be sitting around there trying not to titter and so on, keeping our lips shut and, of course, somebody would burst out and... Or there was another one, uh, you were not allowed to say ta or Neil or Sharon you had in your conversation and he'd be bound to catch you out. That was when he was in good humour. Of course, when he was in bad humour, he'd say until Laura Higgnugair knows Spanish, he'd go to Batarall, which would mean a different thing entirely. Now, in the years before he died, you were, in fact, uh, a student in a boarding school... Could you describe either. what that was like? He had he promised me that if I ever really wanted to leave the place that you know I could and so on. But the letters were always opened when we were sending them home. We couldn't close our letters, so uh, he gave me this little rhyme that I could um, write in my letter so that he'd know I wanted to leave the place. Will I tell you the? Yes. It was um, uh, it was actually out of an old uh, story. It comes a lot into these old Mishkirte um, Finirte, which he used to read for us when we were smaller. And it's Vien Lar Van Adolfescan Chupoigets and Kapogetehuhe Madri Garagostrix Night Namidish, it's Night Nabidish Nilardish Necher. But I never used it, even though I was very tempted to do it on a lot of occasions, but I didn't. I had more of an inclina- inclination to do so when he was dead, really. There was, you know, I was stuck there then, I suppose, and I, there was no way out. What did you know about his work as a child? Well, I didn't know an awful amount about what he was doing. I didn't know that it was uh, very exceptional. Of course, I realised that when I was about 12, I suppose, that there was something important about his work. Um, he used to play these, he used to play his records and he did a lot of tapes that he'd be playing at night time when we were in bed. And we used to kind of sing along. I'd be in one room and Pather in the other, and we'd be kind of trying to best each other at the the singing and so on while we were listening to the tapes. So that all all the stuff is in my head, I suppose. All, a lot of the tapes that he would have at the time. What do you think his 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 work was about? Did you see him as a as a teacher or as a composer or as a musician? What picture did you have of him? I suppose I thought of him as a composer, really. It was a thing that never... I just accepted him for what he was without thinking about it. I used to have problems in school, actually. Um, sometimes people, you know, I, I, I'd nearly be embarrassed about it at times because uh, other girls kind of used to kind of taunt me by saying, of course, you can get away with murder because you're Sean O'Reilly's daughter, you see, and I didn't... You know, sometimes I felt that I'd prefer to be incognito rather than uh, f- feel that, you know, that I was getting any special favours because of him. But um, I suppose I became proud of him later on. Then, you know, I changed my view about that. But I knew that our house was kind of different from other households as well. In what way? Well, we'd have lots of parties and so on and... We had a lot of other people coming in, and I suppose we we didn't have the same customs they might have in other households, like the, like they had around here at the time, whereby they'd say they'd all have the rosary in their households and so on, which we didn't have. I remember one time I was a little bit embarrassed about that, and I uh, kind of uh, made Owen, my younger brother, go up to the room with me, and for about two nights, you know, I, the two of us, you know, I thought this was an awful thing that we weren't saying the rosary, and I. I got him to say the rosary with me once or twice, but we gave it up <laughs> as a bad job afterwards. Like, 
But I was always afraid that he was going to die young. I used to try and imagine what he'd be like as an old man, and I, I couldn't picture him at all. So um, I used to pray when I was young and had my uh, strong, I suppose, a religious outlook that time from school and so on. This was when I was very small. I suppose before I was ten, anyway, when I was eight or nine, and um, I kind of noticed that he wasn't going to communion. Of course, he was—he used to be playing the harmonium anyway, so he wouldn't—he wouldn't leave that. I suppose to come up to go up to communion. I don't know. I I never uh, knew why he didn't, but I used to pray that he would. But I got afraid that if if that if he actually did have communion, that. Uh, that God above would call him to himself because that he'd be too good for, for this earth. I don't know where I got that kind of a cockeyed view, but that's what I thought. So I gave up praying that he'd go to communion and I just used to pray that he'd live until he'd be a hundred instead at that stage. Living in the country, O'Reather developed an interest in rural pursuits, shooting, fishing and boating. Padre O'Reather. I remember one of the, the highlights of that period was a big clay pigeon shoot they had done in... Uh, Conbarns Field, how we call Conbarns, it's Winterlose uh, on it. And um, they were banging away for hours down there, and we arrived on route and the rest of the family. And we saw all these gentlemen arriving up and they're blasting away in pairs, and it came to Sean's turn. I remember watching uh, Mick Sullivan, Mihal uh, Sullivan, that man that wrote, Where Mountain Men Have Sown one of the great strong men around here, who, you know, one of the men of history, who um, was a fantastic shot, and he just banged away and knocked everything out of the sky and seemed fantastic, and then Sean's turn came up, and he went up with his gun and said, pull, and there was a couple of bangs and no hit, and it continued on like this, and I remember being mortified and getting very embarrassed about it. He didn't hit it even once. We didn't take any notice of it. I mean, that was sort of as well as if he'd hit the whole bloody lot of them. Like, didn't knock a feather out of him. No, no. Then he went through uh, a sort of a, fisi- a fishing phase as well, or he he was interested in fishing, I suppose, where he was interested most. He was, yeah. Well, his his father used to do a lot of fly fishing, and uh, with the river close by here, of course, we used to do uh, go down fishing, but. He had fly rods and flies and so on, and he used to wear a tweed cap with flies, with feathers stuck in the cap and her hat. And uh, I remember one occasion we went down to the river, um, the two of us on a summer's evening. It was a beautiful evening. Uh, the midgets weren't out, you know, which was a blessing around here. And uh, we were fishing away. And Sean was always very pishogoch, I'd say. It was something that ran in the family. And... Um, I remember this big bumblebee bumble sort of flew along lazily down the sort of over the water uh, and Sean was watching his hair he had his hat thrown off at this time he wasn't wearing any hat uh, and he watched the bee and the bee was sort of flying around in circles now Sean was casting away with the fly and throwing it into the river and nothing was biting of course and he was casting away and the next thing I noticed were these two bats flying around as well and I didn't take any notice until the next thing I heard an awful kip of the reel going on one of them had swallowed one of the flies that Sean had on the cast and was tied onto the rod and he flying around and of course a bat is the last thing that you know one wants to get caught in their hair especially if they're pishogoch makes it even worse so Sean was there and the f- bat was flying around like the hammers of hell 
and the next thing this bloody bumblebee arrived upstream again and got caught in his hair so Sean thought that the bat had got caught in his hair and I remember pandemonium um, in the end the bat broke loose and, and, and got away and we arrived up home but it was a beautiful evening I remember that evening very well but uh, he used to get photographed then and interviewed and everything like that if somebody arrived to do something for television or radio or paper or something like that he'd insist on being fishing at the time you know uh, photographs there in, in in the box of photographs of with Colm O'Loughlin and he uh, uh, fishing down the river and big waders on him and all that sort of thing and uh, the same way with the shooting he used to go around with the gun over the, the open shotgun over his, his arm sort of thing and walking down the side of a mountain or something um, he was very interested in boating for a while and he used to get all the yachting magazines and he had this boat which he bought from Phil Arthur in Kinmare um, and he bought a hooker in Galway as well which he never had a chance to sail down because he bought it the, the year he died where was his income uh, coming from in those times? I don't know. Uh, it, it just used to arrive from out of nowhere. Um, he was never paid properly for anything. He was never a man that chased for money. And I mean, I remember like the ridiculous situation afterwards when we were sort of trying to get things together. They were in an awful mess. Um, there was big debts in the bank, but there was uh, an awful lot of checks that had never been cashed thrown in amongst newspapers or in amongst books or something like that which had to be all gathered up and, and traced and so on and the dates changed so that they could be used there was actually more money in the end than, than he had overdrawn the bank but it was quite a hefty amount and even I remember a couple of months ago we were going through some papers and out fell a cheque from 1965 for 200 and something pounds which was quite a lot that time which had never been cashed Did he make any money out of his music? No Any real money? No, not really. He, he, you know, he never really chased it. He made music. He made money, all right. On, on, on maybe he'd get a hundred pounds or whatever it was. But he never got any big money out of royalties or anything like that while he was alive. Um, all that area was very sort of unsure um, at that time. All the whole question of royalties and so on, and um, especially in Irish music. So. He, ne he was never really worried about it as long as there was enough there to buy something and I mean he always used to seem to find it somewhere O'Reatha was interested in other art forms as well as music and his house in Coulee attracted artists and writers who were in the area I remember a lot of people coming Richard Murphy came I remember distinctly when they were doing the Battle of Achlund he had written a long poem which was I thought very good at the time I remember, I remember thinking about that at the time even though I didn't understand it very well uh, and he was doing, Sean was doing the music for that. They were going to put a backing on it. I think he used harpsichord afterwards. And he was here, he used to come quite often for a while. Um, there used to be friends of his out from Cork, but obviously he used to meet quite a lot of these people in Cork, so that they, they didn't have to come out that often. Um, I don't, I don't really, I remember, I remember another day when, um, Professor Fleischman arrived out here. They were doing an index together, indexing this huge index. They had an, they had an idea of making an index of all the Irish, you know, known Irish songs and 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 tunes and so on, dance music and so on. And they had spent years and years and years. Professor Fleischman spent years in it, and then Sean got involved, and they would spent years in it, and they revised the whole method of calculating the whole thing. I don't think it's finished yet. And um, Professor Fleischman used to arrive out here to to do some work with Sean. 
probably because John mightn't do it if he was left to his own devices. So um, I remember one very, very nasty wet day that uh, first arrived out in a sco- scooter. He had a scooter that time. And we had a meal. He had a meal here and he did his work with Sean. And in the evening, I remember there was a grand fire in the sitting room and saying, my God, that poor man will have to cycle back to Cork again on a scooter. Um, and he went out in his big, he had a trench coat, I remember, and the motorbike wouldn't start. So Sean had a big black Zephyr V6 at the time. And we all went out and we got the car, the car started and we turned, Professor put the motorbike out in the road and Sean came up behind the motorbike and put the bumper to the motorbike and revved up the car and sailed off into the wild blue yonder. Professor up on the, on, on the motorbike with his coat going in the breeze and the rain and the big black car pushing it to start it on the road on the way into Cork. But it was, um, you know, it was one of those things that quite happened quite frequently. It didn't seem very out of place at the time. But looking back on it, it seems sort of as if it belonged to a different sort of dream world altogether. He was a great reader and lover of books and had built up a large library. His books are still in the house and range from philosophy to politics to French literature, Jewish humour and the Greek classics. What you see in the shelves there is only a small proportion really because um, all the sort of uh, light reading, I suppose you'd call it, um, is stored up in the attic or thrown into boxes all around the house. Or usually, um, regularly, uh, you know, every two or three months, he would gather big boxes of books uh, that he had read, and we'd he'd bring them into a second-hand bookshop and flog them in return for more books. Um, I don't remember seeing him myself um, buying books very often, but I'm uh, an uncle of mine was telling me recently that it was an experience to go into a bookshop with him because he would just walk through the bookshop picking up books as he went that he hadn't read before and walk with maybe a dozen under his arm up to the cashier and buy them just like that without ever perusing through them or anything that he'd know what he wanted and apparently um, this was done on a weekly basis there's a lot of, of as you can see yourself the cross section of books is very very wide I mean it goes from, from books in different languages to, to books in every field of interest really which sort of followed his own interests as he went through life, uh, that I can remember anyway. You can see over in the corner there are all the books on, on sort of um, fishing and hunting and all that sort of thing, and you can see books on history about them sort of thing, and, uh, you know, live biographical works. You can see sort of French books when he sort of probably went through a phrase, that phase when he was in Paris that time. I suppose maybe he was sort of on a French binge that time. Um, and you can see, you know, they follow different de- areas through his life when he's inter- interested in those things. I notice from here, I see uh, just one thing that reminds me there. There was, um, you see, there's some big fat American books there about uh, from Buckley and a few more of these people who were involved uh, in, in, in politics uh, during the McCarthy era, era in America. And I remember he had a, a course in, in UCC with Professor Fleischmann for... Um, Irish Americans on uh, Professor Owen uh, Owen McKiernan was running it. Yes, and um, he got into some hectic arguments at that time with some of those people uh, who were rather uncompromising in their ideas. And I remember loads of books coming to the house after that for quite a while with all these big tomes about um, good reading suggested for Sean O'Reilly, the sort of thing, change his mind. I don't think he ever even opened them. Like others before him, 
Oriada believed that the cultural and economic life of the Gaeltachts were interdependent and that the music and folk traditions would not flourish, nor indeed survive, without an economic superstructure. He therefore set about improving the economic aspect of life in the Cork Gaeltacht. As a result of his endeavours, a factory was built in Balivurna and another, which gave employment to 40, was brought to Coulay. He also believed in encouraging and helping existing crafts or small businesses. Matty Toomey, a local man, had been building trailers in Coulay since the 1940s when Oriada arrived. I was going to play for a grant for to start building trailers. And there was a grant going at the time of £350 or something at a workshop. <coughs> so I approached Sean. I just said it to him simply. So he said, uh, No, he said, Don't go for that. He said, That's no use. We'll get the girl to Grant. And I look after that, he said. So he brought it on the farm. And he said, uh, Wednesday, he said, Meet, come down to my house at three o'clock. And there's a girl to Edmund coming down, and we thrash it out. And there and then. We filled the farm and turned off, and I got my grant. Thanks to Sean. As you know, Gwaltus were at, at uh, that time even um, very undeveloped, and many factories and so on came in there since. Of course, it was government policy, and so on was more or less shaping towards this kind of a thing at the time. But um, Oriana certainly saw it and pressed it, you know, and was involved in trying to form um, cooperatives and, you know, um, getting people to apply for grants which they were justified in getting and so on, you know, this kind of a thing. Um, did that uh, help his music or not? Uh, well, it's hard to say. I suppose it couldn't really help it, but then again he felt that his own idea was smutten ten ashun gwelech you know, that it was a part of the old Irish nation, like the old Irish nation will consider like that came down, we'll say, from... Um, it ended officially, we'll say, at the Battle of Kinsale, but he f- felt that it still existed in remote areas and he felt that without um, a strong e- economic um, foundation that um, it was bound to disappear because, well, he could see it um, locally, like that, I mean, m- maybe over 50% of school children up to that period were going to England and the Irish was going with them and the people who were left around speaking Irish were old people and he knew that uh, when they'd go, well, the tradition would go and disintegrate. To the casual observer, Oriada's life in Coulee was many-sided and well-rounded, perhaps too well-rounded. There was a certain amount of role-playing going on and he doesn't seem to have been completely at ease in some of the parts. So, was all of this an attempt to escape from something? Was he fleeing from the desk and the loneliness of creative work or from something else, something within himself? In a further programme, 